0: What do you get when you mix someone who loves true crime and horror movies with someone who's afraid of their own shadow? Someone like you? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. You get the perfect podcast. We're Carmen and Joanna of Live Laugh Murder Podcast. We're not your typical true crime show. Here at Live Laugh Murder, we tell stories that might be true crime or they might be the plot of a horror film. Can you tell the difference? Don't worry, though, because all is revealed by the end. We are true crime sometimes. So check us out. We release bi-weekly on Saturdays. And remember to live, laugh, but never what, Joanna? Murder. Never murder. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
1: guys, welcome back. This is week 44 at The True Guy in And and i am Beth. And I'm Bailey. And this week, Bailey is the bad guy, mm-hmm. but I am going to hurt your feelings too with the good story. So yeah. apologies in advance. Sorry guys.
0: Uh, <laughs> mine's not going to be any less rough, so <laughs> let's just dive oh, in, shall we? So... Yes ma'am. Hooray. I am taking us to North Carolina today. All right. Latrice Curtis was born May 28th, 1986. I don't know her maiden name. That's her married name now. Yeah. She married her husband, Darren Curtis, on 4-27-2007 at 20 years old. Okay. It seems like they only dated for a couple months before this, and then they kind of just decided to get married as a spur-of-the-moment thing. What could go wrong? Yeah, but... They seemed happy, and they got an apartment together in Raleigh, North Carolina. In 2008, she was in her senior year as an accounting major at North Carolina Central University in Durham, which is about a 30-minute drive from Raleigh. Yeah. On January 29, 2008, which was a Tuesday evening, Latrice called her husband, Darren, at 10 p.m. from Durham, North Carolina, saying hey, I'm heading home from class because she was a night school student. So she said, I'm heading home now, but don't wait up for me. I'm going to stop, grab some food, and then I'll be home soon. Okay. And so he went ahead and went to bed, and then the following morning he woke up and discovered that his wife, Latrice, had not come home yet. All right. When he woke up, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. He went around, searched the house to make sure she wasn't there, and then he decided to call her a couple of times on her cell phone, and she never got back to him. So, officially at 8.25 a.m., he ended up calling 911 and filing a police report that morning.
1: All right. Good he sort of got on the ball with it. Yeah, he's on
0: it. Unbeknownst to Darren, at the time of his call at 8.25 a.m., only about an hour before, around 7, she had been found by several motorists on Interstate 540 on the side of the road. Just Um, her body. no. And that Interstate 540 is... It's one of the interstates that you can take from Durham, to. So it seems like she really was on her way home when she called him.
2: Okay.
0: Like I said, they just found her body at this point. But then when they went about a mile up the road, they also found her car. And it didn't seem like it was crashed. It just seemed like she had, for some reason, pulled her car over to the side of the interstate. And a little bit less than a mile away, her body is found. That's kind of all they can figure out at this
1: point. So there wasn't any obvious reason why she would have Pulled over, didn't look like the car was broken down, or no. a flat tire, or anything
0: like no, that? No, it was literally just, I have a picture that I can okay send to you, and her car is the just, one obviously off the side of the road, Yeah, but they just found it, looks like if she got a flat, it wasn't mentioned in anything, so we wonder, don't really know. I wonder
1: if she stopped to help somebody
0: else. Possibly. Once they did find the car less than a mile away, they took a look inside of it, and that's how they found her ID and all that stuff, so okay. they were able to connect two and two, and they also discovered it was very apparent, they didn't really say why it was apparent, other than there was a lot of blood inside of the car, that that's where the attack had happened. Oh, boy. After that, an autopsy was performed, and apparently she had been stabbed close to 40 times. Christ. All over her abdomen, her throat had been cut in her head. Oh, that's so... They're so psychotic just to stab the hell out of somebody on the side of a road. Mm-hmm. And so based on that, the police kind of guessed it's got to be somebody she knows. It sounds like passion, right? It sounds like somebody that's really pissed or really upset for some reason at her. Yeah. So, of course, they looked into her husband, Darren. He was brought in. The only alibi he could provide was that he was home the whole night. Nobody saw him. He was asleep after she called him and... I mean, that's a reasonable thing. Yeah, I was at home asleep. I don't know what to tell you. The only person that lived with me was out on her way home. Right.
1: I mean, if you're, if you're innocent, that sucks because you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. You genuinely were doing if, the most
0: innocent thing ever. If you're innocent, but you're
1: out partying somewhere, you've got an alibi, but now you're kind of the bad guy because you were out partying somewhere. Look like a douche. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so unfortunately, that was his alibi, but he still ended up, Fully cooperating with the police and gave them fingerprints, DNA samples, and allowed them to get him in his underwear, take pictures for any self-defense or anything like that wounds that could possibly be on his body. Okay. Because a frenzied get attacked like this, you best believe she put some marks on whoever did this. Oh, body.
1: absolutely. And they didn't find anything on him that looked like
0: defensive wounds? He didn't have wounds. a single bruise. Nothing. He was pretty much let go and they're like, we'll keep you up to date on what's going on. Of course, that doesn't rule out a hitman. Nope, But never. I'll shut up and once you tell the story. Several witnesses from earlier in that morning on that interstate, it sounds like there were five total witnesses that passed her car on the side of the road at some point. Okay. One of which being a state trooper who had seen her pulled over on the side that specific car, and it was still in the same place when they passed it, a little bit after one o'clock in the morning. However, her car was not alone at that point. There was another car parked right behind her. So Latrice was driving a Nissan Sentra, which was white, and then the car behind it was a Chrysler Pacifica. Okay. The officer had been passing and thought what you thought, maybe they have a flat, maybe they need some help, so he started to pull over, and then he got a call over the radio, an emergency robbery in place, so he (sighs) had to immediately take off and didn't even stop to talk to them. He wasn't able to. that sucks. I know, it's just like, puts a wrench in your heart knowing that that could have, maybe been prevented yeah just... that could have been the thing that saved her Ugh. But yeah so the trooper did come through and testify and all this stuff about what he had seen he didn't see any people he just saw the people pulled over and sitting in their cars he, he only saw see them the out. two cars yeah he only saw the two cars but then again it was in the middle of the night one o'clock in the morning and a lot of this happened inside the car so if they had locked her in somehow and been stabbing her you might not have even seen it passing by you know yeah But at least we know the make and model of the car. Yeah, right. After the police began asking around schoolmates and other people around Latrice if they had anybody that might be suspicious in her life, that might have had reason to do something like this to her, they ended up hearing some gossip going around campus that Latrice had actually been kind of emotionally romantically involved with one of her classmates. She had a school husband. She had a school husband, and it sounds like a lot of people were talking about how it had recently become more than just emotional affair. It was now becoming a physical affair.
2: Right, okay.
0: They found the name of this classmate. His name was Stephen Randolph, who also had a girlfriend at the time, but it is what it is. Yeah. He confirmed all of that. He said, yep, yeah, we've had class together. We liked each other. And that right before she called her husband, she was at my apartment. We had sex. She left about 10 o'clock, which does line up. They didn't tell him that she called her husband in the, from the car at 10 o'clock. So it does line up with everybody else's story here. Right. So he confirmed all that and said, yeah, she left at 10 o'clock. And then I got a ride from another friend. And we went and hung out at my actual girlfriend's house after that. So he had several witnesses. And it's like you said earlier. That kind of helps his alibi because now he's got five people that were at this hangout that say during the time that she was seen on the side of the road, yeah. he was with us. So, so what again was she doing in Raleigh? She lived in Raleigh, okay. so her campus was in Durham, and that's also where this affair guy lived.
1: Okay, so she was on her way
0: back to Raleigh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I missed that. I know somewhere. it's kind of like <laughs> swapped, but so it makes sense. She told her husband she was finishing up class in Durham. Got but it. really, she was at this guy's apartment in Durham. Okay, I had it backwards. Go ahead. They also discovered that Stephen didn't even have a car at the time because his was out of service and it was in the shop currently. Mm-hmm. However, his roommate, a man named Robert Reeves, owned a Chrysler Pacifica. Really. Mhm. Hmm. So they decided to bring in both of them separately, see what they could find out. Yeah. After Stephen gave his statement, he also agreed to give DNA fingerprints and had photos taken. They, again, found no wounds or anything like that on his body at all. Before leaving, Stephen told the police that he and his girlfriend had been receiving really weird and threatening phone calls from an unknown man. They had been threatening him and his girlfriend, saying that he needed to stop whatever bullshit he was doing with all these women and... Whatever. It seemed like they were mad at him for being a player, basically. Well. And Stephen, at this point, had no idea who this was. He didn't know why they'd be mad at him. But he kind of just said to the police, this might have something to do with it. I don't know. Just letting you... I think that sounds pretty... Full disclosure. (laughs) ...reasonable. Yes. And on top of that, all the strange phone calls from an unknown number, they also discovered that Stephen and his girlfriend, one night when she was at his apartment, they had woken up the next morning and... Both of their cars had tires slashed completely
1: through. Wow. Okay, so somebody's really mad about that. But why would they be mad at the girlfriend? She's not the one doing anything wrong. Don't know. Unless it's like a a mob thing. If you're going to act up, I'm going to take it out on your family.
0: Well, the whole situation kind of seems like everybody was dating other people in this. I don't... I think it's kind of like... I don't know. It could be somebody she had been with in the past. could be somebody. We don't know. It could be. If you're going to have her and you're not going to treat her right, I'll just punish both of you. That's true. Yep. Stephen's like, here's the number. Look into that while you have a second. And then they moved on to his roommate to see what his side of the story and all of this was. Because, again, he has a car that matches the one that was seen near Latrice's car the night before. Did the officer that saw the cars have a color for the Pacifica? Mm -hmm. It was confirmed to be the exact model and everything. It wasn't in any of the reports I read. Wow. Okay. But
1: But it did match the color. Yeah.
0: They said it did. Okay. Robert Reeves, who actually was a well-known minister in the area, he told police that Steven would borrow his car quite frequently, especially recently because his car tires had been slashed and was in the shop. It sounds like Robert's kind of like, well, I don't think he had my car, but he might have because he has a copy of the keys. Yeah, but he
1: was with other people.
0: But he was with other people, exactly. Like I said, they're up speaking to these two men separately so that he doesn't know what Stephen's telling them, and vice versa. Okay, okay. Robert also told them that the night that Latrice had been murdered, he had been at a church event the whole evening and stayed the night at the church. However, this alibi was later proven to be false based Don the testimony of all the other people at this church event. He said, yeah, he never showed up to that. He was never there. Yeah, that seems fishy then. hmm Robert also offered up his DNA, fingerprints, and body photos, which police, when they went to take those photos, noticed he had several fresh wounds on his hand and leg. That's shocking mm-hmm. that the guy
1: whose car matches and has, has falsified his alibi mm-hmm. also might have wounds that were defensive by the victim. Yep.
0: He claimed that he received these deep wounds when he had been trying to move a desk.
1: I've I just... moved a lot of desks in my time. I've I might have gotten... had a bruise. I might have hurt my foot a little bit. I've never gotten deep wounds on my legs.
0: A knife wound with a knife sharp enough to slit somebody's throat. Yeah, that's not how I move desks. Yeah, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Although I'm no professional furniture mover, so (laughs) So, what
0: do I know? I know, maybe he's just really accident prone. We don't know, I guess, but... Well, we do know he's a liar. Mm Mm-hmm, that's true. On top of that information, they were also able to collect some DNA from the steering wheel in Latrice's car, and they didn't really specify how this was determined, but they ran it through with Darren, her husband, and Stephen, her lover's DNA, and both of them were not matches at all to this. Okay. However, when they tried to run Roberts, they said it could not be determined to be a match, but they also could not rule him out. And I don't know if that's because the technology that they had this specific time in this station was like a secretor versus non-secretor situation or something like that. Isn't there a case where they if they don't have a certain
1: quantity they can only run certain limited tests on it? I think maybe that, they yeah, didn't have enough. That's possible too. And I don't know if if what I'm saying is true or not, but I believe that I've heard that before.
0: Yeah, that's totally possible. But all they know for sure is three people that they've talked to so far, the two men that she's currently in a relationship with and then the roommate of one of the guys, and for some reason this roommate who also has a car that matches the one seen with her and also is lying about his alibi and has you know, injuries all over him, is now a kind of match to this.
1: And from my own perspective, Mm -hmm. I have seen so many of these people who are religious people who Mm -hmm. get judgy and think it's their job to punish the people that they think are sinners. Mm -hmm. And so I'm seeing that guy and I'm thinking, okay, he thought he was working in God's way. or They play
0: God. That's exactly it. Yeah, they decide... So that's what I'm seeing out of him right now. Okay. The police also traced back the phone number that Stephen had given that had been harassing him and his girlfriend. And they traced it back to none other than Pastor Robert Reeves. So the roommate wouldn't have had his phone number or did he have a different phone? He had a second cell phone, okay. which when the police confronted him about this, he said, oh, that's my fun time phone. So he's judgy of other people, but he's got his own little proclivities and he's all right with that. On top of that, since we're on that note, it was also soon discovered that Robert Reeves had previous arrests in South Carolina on sex charges while he was the pastor of another church. See what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So finally, this guy was arrested February 2nd, 2008. After speaking to several more people about Reeves, it was also discovered that he had been known to be creepy and a predator towards other young men in the church and otherwise. Towards young men now. So now he's he's a full, he's f- full an equal opportunity predator. Yep. Okay, grief. Stephen, during the trial, testified that Robert had been the one to offer him a room at the apartment. And he'd like hunted him down, said, hey, you seem like you need a place to stay. You can stay with me and just pay cheap rent, you know? And then once Stephen had moved in, Robert had started trying to proposition him. Hey, you don't have to pay rent if you have sex with me. or And he would make all these really awkward, uncomfortable comments. He said at one point, he kept telling him, look, I'm not interested. I'm straight. This is not going to happen. If you keep being weird, I'm going to find another place to live. Right. And so Robert would apologize. And then a couple weeks later, he would come in and be like, just turn off the lights. You won't even know it's not a girl doing it to you. Like, it's... <laughs> and, so, and Stephen finally... Got so creeped out by this guy, he borrowed a gun from his cousin and was keeping it in his room. And so I don't know why he never once was like, maybe this guy's the one slashing my tires. Or maybe this guy's the one harassing me and my
1: girlfriend. Well, I mean, the fact that the guy is, one, gay, two, tone deaf Mm -hmm. about, you know, obviously the guy is not interested.
0: Yeah, I'm not into you.
1: That doesn't necessarily mean that his roommate is going to make the leap that, oh, and he might be a murderer, too. True. You know, people yeah. don't usually take the red flags and raise them up the pole. They normally
0: And that's true. If this had happened not to be sexist, but just realistically speaking, if this was a female roommate and that this was happening to, she'd be gone. She would be like, I see the warning signs and I'm getting the fuck out of here. But a man, he's uh he's gay. I don't want to seem homophobic and yeah, I don't hitting on me if, and I feel weird about it. Yeah, I don't care if you're gay, but I, that doesn't make me gay too. Mhm. So So I totally see a man versus a woman's perspective on that, where he's like, no, I can put up with it. He just needs to stop. I just avoid him. It's fine.
1: But to be fair, a lot of women don't heed the red flags either.
0: I think a lot more do now, but this wasn't 2008, so. Yeah. So after all of this, the prosecution, their best guess, because of course Robert's denying it all, even though he's been blatantly called out for lying about it all, but their best guess as to what happened was that apparently he had not been home that night. But when he'd gotten to the apartment, he saw her leaving after her date or whatever with Steven and realized that he had had another woman over. He wanted to be with Steven. He's mad. And now he's like, now there's another woman in this too? And my competition, he essentially saw her as. Right. And so he decided to follow her onto the freeway. And we don't really know why she pulled over if he faked being a cop or if he did something like that maybe he ran her off the road we don't know why she stopped right on the side of the road that's never been revealed
1: well if she recognized him and he Mm -hmm. pulls up next to her and he's like pull over pull over pull over Mm -hmm. if he's never been actively psychotic towards her before Mm -hmm. why wouldn't she pull over this is someone she knows
2: that's true this is
1: my quote-unquote boyfriend's roommate
0: mm-hmm.
1: if he's telling me to pull over there must be a good reason
0: yeah maybe i forgot my phone there you know something weird like or that. maybe
1: there's something wrong with my tire or maybe he can yeah. see something i can't maybe my gas cap's open
0: maybe he saw somebody climb in my back seat before i could yeah. close the door you know so
1: she would not probably think too much about that
0: and that has been brought up that maybe she just recognized him and saw him a threat and pulled yeah. over with him right Also, during the testimonies, they had one of Latrice's best female friends come forward and she said around 2 o'clock that morning. So remember, the troopers saw the two cars on the side of the road a little bit after 1. Right. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, she received a phone call from Latrice's cell phone and when she had answered, it sounded like she'd been butt dialed. But all she could hear, she kept saying, Latrice, Latrice, are you there? And all she could hear was howling wind and what sounded like cars passing by in the distance and then footsteps on gravel. Oh, wow. There's a couple of possibilities. If Latrice had accidentally butt-dialed her, if maybe Robert had accidentally butt-dialed her, or also if this was during the scuffle itself because her throat had been slit. If she had panicked and been like, I need to call somebody who's going to be awake and can yeah, get to me. she
1: wouldn't be able to talk.
0: Mm-hmm. So where was her phone found? They said it was a hundred yards away from her body. So it sounds like he literally just threw it. Or she was running with it. That's possible because she was found like a little bit less than a mile away from her car. I bet
1: she probably dialed it. Put like it in her saying, pocket or something. And, and then the footsteps in the gravel were probably hers. The phone dropped. She's like, I can't stop and pick it up. I've got to keep running.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, this is awful. But, I like, can picture all of this in my head and it's just awful. Just
0: the knowledge of like... That poor thing. Yeah. Pastor Robert Reeves pled not guilty, but was finally convicted of first-degree murder in October of 2009, and he received life without the possibility of parole. And this case has been kind of controversial ever since, because a lot of the people in the Durham area who knew him as, like, a church pastor, they seemed to think he was set up and a lot no. of them are like, free Robert Reeves. And I'm like, oh, no. a lot of the quotes oh, no. they gave were, he was such a God-fearing man. I'm like, yeah, he should probably fear God if he just is out there <laughs> fucking murdering people because he couldn't get his dick wet. Sorry. Well, the <laughs> just the thing
1: is that there are good people who flock towards religion because they see this as like a moral umbrella. It, mm-hmm. it gives them guidance on what they should do to be good people. And then there are people who are bad people who flock towards religion because they're like, other people are going to be good, but I can do what I want and they won't suspect me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always look at it a little bit cross-eyed because I don't ever assume that religion makes you a good person. It's
0: kind of like, yeah, the same thing goes with police officers. Most people that are police officers do it because they want to help. They want people to get home safe and stuff like that. Most people that are in a religion are good people. However, there are those few that come in here and get jump in there for the innocence shroud that it gives Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And yep. that's unfortunately what it seems like yep. Robert Reeves did, and I think he's where he needs to be personally, but... I think you're right. I think he is also where he
1: should be because I think everything that you have told us makes him sound very, very guilty. Okay, so my upper story...
0: Is, I'm going to laugh because you already told me that you need tissues. It is,
1: <laughs> it is rough. And this story involves danger and injury to an animal. And it involves mm-hmm. some really, really gruesome injuries. So I'm just going to warn anybody who's not up to that today that you might want to skip forward to the bloopers. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Now, the people in the story, there's not a lot of background information about them. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you a lot about the chimpanzee. Oh. Yeah, you know already where I'm going.
0: Uh, Kinda, maybe.
1: But I've never heard the full story before. And so I thought, because there's a lot of really intricate issues involved in this situation. Okay. Travis the Chimpanzee, who was named after Travis Tritt, by the way, he was born in the Missouri Chimpanzee Sanctuary on October 21st, 1995 in Festus, Missouri. Sandra Harold and her husband Jerome Harold, who had property and land and horses in Connecticut, did what I think is an unspeakably cruel thing and took this 3-day-old chimpanzee from his mother Susie on October 24th, purchasing him from the sanctuary for $50,000. So they obviously had some money and thought to go they could live just live in
0: Connecticut? Yeah. Okay.
1: The Harolds took Travis home to Stamford, Connecticut, and he accompanied them nearly everywhere they went. He went shopping with them. He sometimes went to work at the towing company they owned. He would pose for photos in the tow trucks with his seatbelt on. He would greet police officers on the scene of cars that they had called to have towed. Soon, he was well-known in the community, and everybody knew Travis. They started placing him on television shows and commercials, making him something of a local celebrity. Mm -hmm. Travis was very bright, as chimpanzees are known to be. And having been raised with humans, he watched what was going on around him, and he took directions well. He was able to do many things that a human child could do. He ate with the family, he fed himself, he dressed himself, he had his own chores to do. His chores included watering plants and feeding hay to the family's horses. He could open doors using a key. He used the remote control to watch TV. He used a water pick to brush his teeth. He logged into the family's computer to look at pictures. It's said that he knew what time to expect the ice cream truck to come around every day. He had even driven a car several times. Travis was treated like he was part of the family.
0: I mean, it's nice and cool that he's smart enough to learn to do these things, but why? Why does he need to do those things? Have you thought about just adopting a child? Because you're literally treating him like one. Yeah. fucking weird, to be honest.
1: No, I agree completely with you, because there are so many children who need a home. And they could have given that child a great home. And this chimp would rather be anywhere but in the suburbs would have or rather, whatever. Yeah, he would have rather <laughs> not been taken from his mother at three days old. Mm. Just imagine the pain that caused his mother. And mm. she subsequently died in 2000.
2: Traumatic.
1: In the year 2000, when Travis was five years old, Sandra and Jerome Harold lost their only human daughter, Susan, who was 38, in a car accident. Mm. In 2003, when Travis was eight years old somebody threw an empty bottle at the car window and it it went inside the window and hit travis he freaked out unbuckled his seat belt opened the car door and chased the person who threw the bottle fortunately for that person travis never caught him but once he had escaped out of the car he went on the run for several hours the police were called the intersection was blocked and traffic was a mess for several hours police would manage to lure travis into the car and then travis would just open the door on the other side and let himself out again So a few times he actually chased police officers around the outside of the car. This incident was really disturbing to a lot of locals and it made news around the state. The traffic incident ultimately prompted a bill in Connecticut limiting primates kept as pets to 50 pounds or less. Adult male chimpanzees typically are around 130 pounds and at 8 years old Travis was far above the 50 pound weight limit. But the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, who administered the requirement, did not believe that Travis posed a public safety risk. And since Travis had already been with the Heralds for eight years, he was grandfathered in and allowed to stay with the family. But starting about the same time as the escape, Travis had begun having odd stretches of erratic behavior. He was just less controllable, less predictable. Sometimes he would get agitated or anxious. At eight, he was still seven years from full adulthood. And it seemed to be going through some growing pains. Mm-hmm. But chimpanzees, despite their intelligence, are not domesticated creatures. And like any wild creature, they can be unpredictable. And they can also have emotional backlashes, to Upsets in their routines, their daily lives, their family situations. And then in 2004, Jerome Harold died of cancer. So this just left Sandra and Travis now because their daughter was also gone. See,
0: it's... I get that. Okay, he seems happy. He's fitting in well with the family. All that stuff for the most part. But anybody can fake happy or just be like, okay, this is just the way it is right now. For well, he, do- long he doesn't enough. know anything different. I, well, I know. But after, as you get older and older and older, and you realize the situation and how unhappy you are, you're gonna snap. Whether you're a chimp or a dog or like a human, you no, know? that's
1: what I'm saying. He doesn't know what the alternatives are, but he mm-hmm. knows that. He's never been anywhere else that he can remember. Yeah. And he's just getting more and more agitated because he doesn't know why inside him he doesn't feel right.
0: And the instincts are coming out. Exactly. he's like, I can't, I can't do what I feel like I should be doing. <laughs> oh, it's so Yeah, horrible. that's exactly right. Mm.
1: Sandra was devastated by the losses of her daughter, of her husband, and her previously loving and vibrant family life. She began to really dote on Travis. He was part of the family before now, but he was her personal companion now. Mm-hmm. and she treated him like he was her child except more than that almost if he was part of the family before he was now half of it it was reported that Sandra and Travis not only ate all their meals together he also slept in her bed every night they bathed together not gonna lie that part's kind of weird hmm but through the doting the rich meals the easy lifestyle Travis became very overweight and he got up to around 200 pounds which is about 70 pounds or 50% more than a typical adult chimpanzee. Sandra did have other friends, and one of her oldest friends was a woman named Charla Nash. They had become close over a 30-year period after having ridden horses together as part of Loretta Lynn's traveling rodeo back in the 1970s, which is kind of cool. By now, Charla was 55, Sandra was 70, and they saw each other pretty often, and even more after Jerome had died. Charla would stop by several times a week to check on Sandra and Travis to help out. In fact, Sandra and Charla were planning to open a business together in April 2009. But in addition to being friends with Sandra, she also worked for Sandra, and when Sandra needed her help, Charla was there. Having known Travis since he was a baby, Charla felt relatively comfortable around him, but she had always felt that having him in a home was not very safe. Mm -hmm. She respected the instincts and unpredictability of wild animals and had wondered to herself what would happen if he ever escaped and got out of control, Mm -hmm. which is what we were just talking about. But nothing too bad had ever happened, so she just kept doing her job and seeing her friend. On February 16, 2009, Travis had been agitated, and to help him relax, Sandra gave him a Xanax and a cup of tea. But he continued acting up. He had stolen Sandra's keys and had run out of the house with them. Sandra had been trying to coax him back into the house, but he was worked up and he wouldn't have it. He just got more and more riled up. Sandra was getting frustrated and called Charla, asking her to come and help get Travis under control. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Using a tactic that had worked before, Charla showed up, she came out, she grabbed Travis's favorite Tickle Me Elmo and held it out and she squeezed it, squeaking it, trying to lure him back so she could get the car keys away from him. It's been theorized that a recent change that Charla had made to her hair might have made Travis unsure of who she was or maybe he thought a stranger was taking his toy. But in any event... Travis was not himself that day, and he did not react in the same way as usual. Travis attacked Charla. Screaming and screaming, he tore at her face and her hands, biting her mouth and nose and for all purposes, mauling almost all of her face off. Parts of her fingers were strewn about on the ground. All the while, Travis just kept screaming. And he wasn't just attacking Charla, he was eating her. Sandra screamed at him to stop. She had never seen this kind of behavior, and when he didn't respond to her voice, she finally hit him in the head with a shovel. Even the shovel didn't stop the attack. She could see the horrific injuries to Charla, and she feared Travis was killing her. She finally resorted to stabbing Travis in the back with a kitchen knife. She said after stabbing him with the knife, he turned and looked at her with betrayal. Her later comment was, quote, for me to do something like that, put a knife in him was like putting one in myself, end quote. She tried to pull him off of Charla, but he was 200 pounds and he was too strong and she couldn't do it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Sandra called 911 and told them that she thought Travis might have killed her friend Charla. At first, the operator thought it might be a hoax call, but they could hear the screaming of Travis in the background and when Sandra started screaming, he's eating her, Mm -hmm. they took the call seriously. An ambulance arrived, but they couldn't get to Charla to help her until the police had arrived to protect them from Travis who was covered with Charla's blood. He ran off into the woods and paramedics attended to Charla. He came back around to the police car and Travis tried to get into the passenger side of the car but couldn't because the door was locked. Travis was still frenzied from the attack. He was injured and the person he looked at as his mother had been the one to hurt him. So from his point of view, the mental capacity of a human child, he was scared. Mm -hmm. He kept circling the police car, which was occupied by Officer Frank Chiafari, who had played with Travis as Travis was growing up. He knew him when he was a baby. Mm -hmm. Travis broke one of the outside mirrors off. And when he finally got around to the door that he could open, which was the driver's side door, Officer Chiafari was trapped. Travis bared his teeth, which had blood on them, and snarled. And to prevent being attacked, the officer had no choice but to fire four shots at Travis. He later stated, quote, When I first saw him, he was small and cute and friendly. He'd wave at you. Who would have ever thought when we were playing together? We'd have this incident 15 years later, end quote. Travis, now gravely injured, dragged himself back inside the house.
0: It's horrible because I'm like not just sad. I'm like pissed,
1: you know? I know, I know. It was so preventable. <sighs> Travis, now gravely injured, dragged himself back inside the house and retreated to the place he felt safe, his cage, and he died there. The emergency personnel finally reached Charla. After this horrific attack, Charla's life was changed forever. She had surgery after surgery. Some things were never going to be able to be repaired. But doctors did as much as they could to save her life and then to begin repairing the unbelievably gruesome injuries to her. And as a warning, if you don't think you're up to this description, maybe skip forward 30 to 35 seconds because this is horrifying. Mm -hmm. All the bones in Charla's face were broken. An x-ray showed basically a hole where her face used to be because her mid-face bone was completely gone. Her eyes were gone. Her jaw was detached from her face. Her eyelids, her nose, and her lips were completely bitten or torn off. Her scalp was almost completely gone. Her left hand had been torn off at the wrist and most of the right hand had also been torn off. All that remained of her right hand was her thumb. She had traumatic brain injuries and some hearing loss. Because her injuries were so incredibly traumatic and so severe, the hospital staff was provided with counseling to help them process and deal with what they had seen. The captain of the Stanford Emergency Medical Service told the New York Times, quote, I've been doing this a long time, and I have never seen anything this dramatic on a living patient, end quote. A trauma surgeon at Stanford Hospital where Charlotte was first taken said, quote, "You could tell this woman when she came in, she needed to live. She had a reason to live." End quote.
0: When the paramedics got there, was she still conscious or was she like passed out from the blood loss and trauma? Like I, I think
1: she was probably not conscious and she barely had a pulse.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Four surgical
1: teams performed extensive surgeries to save what they could. She spent months at the Cleveland Clinic where her daughter Brianna visited when she could. After her jaw was reattached to her, she was still totally unrecognizable. Her face was so shocking to people that she would typically wear a hat with a hanging over veil so that people wouldn't see her Mm -hmm. to alleviate that shocking effect to everyone. Brianna said that her mother's appearance wasn't what she worried most about. She knew that her mom had brain injuries But once she knew that her mom's brain was going to heal and that she would be okay mentally, Brianna said she could calm down Mm -hmm. and she could look at the situation more rationally. Because she didn't care what her mom looked like. She just Mm -hmm. wanted her mom back. But for several reasons, Charla and her family decided to still take the next step. And it was a very, very big step. Charla became the world's second recipient of an experimental double hand and whole face transplant, which some articles say was performed at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. But it seems to me that I remember that it was actually also done at the Cleveland Clinic.
0: Well, they're known at the Cleveland Clinic. They just did one recently.
1: So I think it happened at the Cleveland Clinic. And I think a couple of articles just misstated where it actually happened. Because she did get a lot of treatment at the Brigham and Williams Hospital. I gotcha. But again, Charla was to be the second recipient of this groundbreaking surgery. Mm -hmm. The first recipient of a similar transplant surgery had later died. So it was a really risky thing. Charla, after her surgery, unfortunately developed pneumonia and kidney failure, which hampered blood circulation to her hands, so the two hands did not thrive after transplant. Mm -hmm. But even though doctors did have to remove the hands from Charla, they were able to save them for use on another suitable donor. But her face transplant did thrive, and it was about more than just her appearance. Her appearance mattered because she was terrifying to people, because she was really shocking. Mm -hmm. But after the face transplant, Charla was able to feed herself again which was a boost to her independence and her mental health. She had been so independent before the attack and afterward having to depend on other people to do every little thing for her was really a challenge. Mm -hmm. She was also finally able to breathe through her nose. She could smell and she could eat without drooling. In November of 2009, Charla went on Oprah and talked frankly about what she had been through with the attack, with the surgeries, and the experimental face transplant. Mercifully, she said she was not feeling any pain, and she was just looking forward to going home. She was staying in a facility at that time. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have any memory of the attack, which is also merciful, and helped with her psychological health. Mm -hmm. Doctors have told her the memory might come back someday, and if it does, she's gonna have to reach out for help. But she's hoping for the best, and she hopes that the memories stay hidden and don't come back to her as nightmares or full memories. In December 2009, Connecticut state prosecutors made the decision not to pursue criminal charges against Sandra Harold, although the Nash family did file a $50 million lawsuit against her. Mm -hmm. But before that could be litigated, Sandra Harold died in 2010 of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Her lawyer released a statement saying that the death of Susan, then the death of Jerome, the death of Travis, and the mauling and terrible injuries of her friend Charla had just been too much for her. He said, quote, in the end, her heart, which had been broken so many times before, could take no more, end quote. Charla was told by her brother that Sandra had died alone and friendless, and Charla was sad that she had died such a lonely
0: death. They had been
1: friends for 30
0: years. To be honest, and I'm not saying this to be mean, but it really does sound like Sandra could have used some therapy to begin with, with all those losses. Yeah. And then you're relying as your sole companion, essentially, on a chimp who doesn't know how to be a human being. That's not a healthy thing to do.
1: Right, and he probably felt the pressure of all of her extra attention.
0: Anybody, if somebody just, you become their sole person.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And even as a chimpanzee, I'm sure he could feel the emotional and and familial changes around the Mm -hmm. house. Charlotte was sad that she had died such a lonely death she said she didn't hold anger against sandra and that she felt sure that sandra had been really devastated by what had happened to her but the lawsuit was settled with sandra's estate for four million dollars in 2012. a necropsy was done on travis to check for rabies and to try to determine if there were other illnesses brain injuries lesions or tumors that might have caused his violent change in behavior He did not have any signs of disease, but he had been receiving medication to prevent Lyme disease as well as having been given tea laced with Xanax the day of the attack. Sandra had already told police about this medication, but it's been theorized that the Xanax may have been the reason for his unusual aggression, as some human side effects of Xanax have been reported as hallucination, mania, aggression, rage, and disorientation. So obviously it's meant to help people with anxiety, But there are people who have these other side effects instead.
0: Especially if you don't know you're taking it. If you don't have the mental capacity to understand what that is doing or why that is happening to you. Right. Like imagine if somebody slipped a Xanax in your drink. If you meant to take it, you might be all chilled out and whatever. But if you start feeling kind of woozy and I'd freak the fuck out. You know, swimmy. Yeah. So,
1: no, that makes perfect sense. So if...
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, was he prescribed that from a vet or was she just... think
1: I don't think he was.
0: So she was giving him her Xanax essentially. I think so. Hmm. So if that
1: is what happened, what was given to him to calm him down might have actually started this spiral that he went into. Mm -hmm. Also, I read that Lyme disease itself can also cause psychosis and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if the reports were wrong and the drug he was on was a treatment for Lyme disease rather than a preventative, Who knows? But, you know, no news story is 100% accurate, no matter how hard they try. So that could have been a mistake also. And as an aside, before I go to Charla's life, findagrave.com says that after Sandra died, her daughter Susan's cremated remains and Travis's cremated remains were buried with her in her casket, and Mm -hmm. they were all buried next to Jerome. For several years, Charla was living in a facility that was helping her with occupational therapy and also just helping her with everything, all of her daily tasks. She bristled under the constant care and said how frustrating it was to be in a place where every little thing was done for her. She used to change her own truck tires, for hell's sake. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard for her to sit and let other people take care of her every need. But by 2016, Charla was on the Today Show and told Meredith Vieira that she had been told she was experiencing some minor rejection of the face transplant because she had participated in a military study to attempt to wean her off of the anti-rejection drugs. She participated in this because the military had actually paid for her face transplant surgery.
0: I've seen that before where, is it because for wounded soldiers they might need a similar surgery and they want to research?
1: Right. I didn't write this in my script, but the main injuries that soldiers come back from war with are extremities and face.
0: And disfigurations, yeah.
1: Right. So she was a test case for them on how they can treat servicemen and servicewomen who are coming back with these terrible injuries. Okay. So she wanted to participate in this study. She thought those people were heroes, and she was happy to be part of it. Mm -hmm. The side effects of anti-rejection drugs are significant, and Charla wanted to participate because she wanted the chance to help these other people. Mm -hmm. So she had to go back on her old medication, and her face transplant was not expected to have any further rejection. Everything was fine with that afterwards. But she did feel really satisfied that the study learned a lot from her experience, and she was really glad that she had had the chance to participate. By 2016, Charlie was regaining some of her independence and living on her own. She was getting out of the house, running her own errands, using a transport service for the disabled. She said that getting out and doing normal things made her feel almost normal again, like she was a person again. She still likes to dress in things that make her feel good. She likes to go shopping. She likes to wear some jewelry. She's stubborn. She's independent. She's willful. She has a sense of humor. In that Today video, Meredith Vieira made the comment on Today, quote, When people tell her she looks good, her normal response is, "Ah, I've had a little work done. (laughs) That's actually cute. It is cute. I mean, Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of video of her talking, and she is, she's amazing. Mm -hmm. She's an amazing woman. She's strong. She wants to get back out and ride horses again. I don't know, I couldn't find any documentation on whether she's been able to do that or not, Mm -hmm. but I believe she will. If she finds the right horse, I think she can do it. Yeah. And she'll need some help holding on because she's only got the one thumb. Yeah. But she's an experienced horsewoman. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Or get like a harness type of situation maybe. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: She spends a lot of time listening to audiobooks. She has aides who help her prepare her food, but she uses a prosthetic hand and she feeds herself. The hand was paid for by a GoFundMe that a friend of hers set up for her. She had received the $4 million settlement from the lawsuit, but that basically covered her medical and legal bills. And help with some of her daughter's expenses because her daughter was still growing up at this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But even with her one natural thumb that remains, she has learned to text so she can communicate with people. She inspires people around her with her lack of self-pity, with her humor and her strength. Her favorite time of day is the morning because, quote, I hear the birds singing. I can feel the sun. It's like another good day. Let's get started. Mm-hmm. Quote. The aftermath of the attack did bring about some change and some expected change that didn't actually go all the way through. Okay. Later in 2009, the year of the attack on Charla, U.S. Representative Mark Kirk sponsored a bill in the House of Representatives that would have prohibited the keeping of apes, monkeys, and lemurs as household pets, but the bill did not pass in the U.S. Senate. Officer Chiafari, who had had no choice but to shoot Travis, faced terrible anxiety and depression and struggled to get therapy to deal with these after-effects. His department wouldn't pay for his therapy. Because of that, another bill was put forth in 2010 that would require the coverage of mental health care for police officers who are forced to kill an animal. Mm-hmm. And I can't even find confirmation that this bill passed, but it does seem as if first responders should have any trauma experienced in the line of duty covered by their insurance.
0: Yeah, just because it doesn't affect you doesn't mean it's not going to affect the next person. What do you mean? Saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be traumatized by that. Okay, well, that's great that you wouldn't be. But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, this thing that happened to me I'm traumatized by from on the job, then it is your responsibility as an employer to make sure. Well, if you're going
1: to shoot a chimpanzee and you're not traumatized by that, I think that there's something wrong with you. Yeah, you're the problem, not the guy that is traumatized. Yeah, because, I mean, they're practically human. Mm-hmm. They are 99% human.
0: But, yeah, he knew this, Chip. He knew this. Like, that's right. Like, since a baby, so... Yeah.
1: As of March 2022, the latest update I could find was that Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, and Texas still allow the keeping of chimpanzees as pets, although I believe a permit is required.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: All of the other states have passed laws that prohibit the keeping of non-human primates as pets. Also, from what I found, it appears to me that it is illegal to import non-human primates into the U.S. as pets. Non-human primates include monkeys, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, gibbons, apes, baboons, marmosets, tamarins, lemurs, and lorises. Chimpanzees share nearly 99% of their genetic makeup with humans, making them our closest genetic relative. They are not monkeys, and they are not hairy people, and they do not belong in human homes. According to a blog published by the Humane Society of the United States, quote, Treating chimpanzees or any other non-human primate as surrogate children does not change their wild and highly unpredictable nature. They are victims of the exotic pet trade who should never have been living in a human home. Primates suffer enormously when kept as pets or used for public contact activities. To be sold for these purposes, infants are removed from the nurturing care of their protective mothers shortly after birth a practice that can lead to lifelong physical and psychological problems. Complex behavior and biological needs go unmet in home settings. Primates are also dangerous to their owners and to other people. Purchased as cued and manageable infants, all primate species inevitably become aggressive, unpredictable, and territorial as they mature. Keeping these wild animals in a human home doesn't change that.
2: Mm-hmm. End quote. Mm-hmm. Yep. So
1: I have not brought you a person-on-person crime. But 14 years before Charla Nash was brutalized by Travis the Chimpanzee, Travis the Chimpanzee was basically a crime was committed against him. And he was stolen out of the arms of his mother and forced into an unsustainable life in the Harold home.
0: Yeah, it might not have been like an intentional crime against another human, but it was selfish negligence. That's what it was. Absolutely. And
1: they created a pressure cooker.
0: mm -hmm. I don't
1: believe that the Heralds had bad hearts, but I think there was an arrogance there. And there was a definite ignorance there that led these people and this chimpanzee to a really dangerous crossroads. And once they set that in motion, it was inevitable that somebody was going to get hurt. Mm And with that, I will close with some wise words that Charla said about going through an experience like this. Quote, I would say that if anyone gets in this situation, don't think about the past and what has happened. Think about what you're going to be going forward and what you want to do next. Never give up. End quote. And she has never given up. Mm -hmm. She has inspired people for 13 years now. And she is tough, determined, independent, stubborn. And a lesser person would not have made it. She is mm-hmm. mind-blowingly amazing, what so, she has been through and what she has done.
0: I didn't realize that she was only the second person in the United States to have the face trans... Better yet, the first person to survive it, you know? Yeah. it. That's crazy. I don't
1: know if the first person was in the United States.
0: Or if... Yeah.
1: It almost seems like it was a woman in England, but I might be misremembering that. That was a really hard story, and I'm sorry to put you through that trauma with Travis, but
0: it wasn't at fault.
1: That's the end of what I have for today, and this is a long episode. That's a, that was a long story for me.
0: We haven't had a single scream today.
1: No, we haven't. Maybe we better do a quick goodbye just in case. Where can people find us?
0: As usual, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at True Crime B&B.
1: Our emails are open to you at truecrimebnbpod
0: at gmail.com. And until next week for week 45, we're going to sign off. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for
1: being here, everyone. We're happy to have our crime family back, and we will see you again next week. See
0: ya! Bye. Bye. to
1: pass great the cat finally shuts the hell up
0: maybe it's the rocket from China that's falling somewhere in the world
1: <laughs> came all the way from China just to smash us I did us. say
0: it was going over Atlanta so it how becomes, do I tap out you don't you
1: sit there and you just take it it's preparing me for my eyes to be watery and you're it.
0: like <laughs> if I just dehydrate myself it won't yeah I'm
1: trying to keep my eyes from getting slobbery <laughs> I'm sorry there's gonna be a lot of work today. It could be a lot of blank stuff to cut out of here what happened why are you opening H&R Block? We're not going to do that right now. <laughs> He's just in the mood for some taxes. <laughs> that right. I can't get it to close. <laughs> Fuck off. I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> All right, I just start that whole paragraph over because H&R Block interrupted me. <laughs> They're like, hey, are you ready to buy your new tax software yet? Well, sponsorship deal <laughs> works. <laughs>
0: I would be like, Bob, get out of my shower, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it, well, well, yeah, me too.